Good morning, church. It's beautiful to see you all this morning. Today we are continuing in our study of the kings of Israel entitled Choose Wisely. This sermon series is helping us to evaluate how we make decisions, but from a biblical perspective. Last week we started by looking at the wisdom of King Solomon. From the context of 1 Kings chapters 2 through 8 last week, we learned that wisdom is found in the choice to bring our inadequacy to God. We all have inadequacy. Instead of hiding from that, bringing that to God and allowing God to work through that to make us more wise. To not grow comfortable, also we learned last week, but to press on into God's purposes for us. We can be people who are drawn towards comfort. How can we resist that and to press on and maybe some uncomfortable things that the Lord would have for us? And then last, last week was to choose to grow our heart's devotion towards God. How can we grow deeper and deeper in love with the Lord as a key to having wisdom, possessing wisdom as we walk with him? And last week I shared that while Solomon was a good king, that he did have significant character flaws. Solomon was a complex person that had a sincere love for God, but his heart was drawn away due to a a series of unwise decisions that he made. These unwise choices setting him up for disaster. Speaking of unwise choices that lead to something we don't want, Henry Ford is a name that most of us are familiar with. And in his day, he was one of the biggest names in American life. His use of mass production of manufacturing the Model T automobile not only shaped the U.S. economy and also industry, but it also shaped the values of 20th century American life. In a 2005 biography of Henry Ford, it tells the story of a man who achieved incredible fame and fortune. Incredible. And describes how in the end, this gifted man was undone by his own success. Ford loved ordinary people, and they loved him back. By 1920, half of the cars on U.S. roads were Ford's. But it wasn't just cars that Ford was selling. He preached a new gospel to a public that was raised on Puritan ideas of delayed gratification and self-control. This new gospel, Ford believed that money was for spending and that workers should use their income to buy products that would improve their lives. Just so happens he's selling a Model T. Seen as a hero for making it possible for the average family to own a car, Ford's opinion was sought for every area of life. I mean, people were asking him about world peace. They were asking him advice about their marriage, about how to raise their children. I mean, this is a successful businessman who makes cars, and he's getting asked about everything. The adulation of others ultimately convinced Ford that he was infallible and led him to some ruinously bad decisions. It blinded him to his own hypocrisy as he preached family values and old-fashioned virtue, but at the same time kept a mistress. It may have also driven him to destroy his only child. Henry Ford resented his son's gentle attitude and the fact that he was a lot more likely to become a college professor than a successful businessman like himself. And though therefore he, he ruthlessly undercut his son at every turn only to then mourn grievously when his son died in early death. Ford's last days 
were sorrowful on a visit to the house where he and his wife, who had been deceased at the time, uh, lived as newlyweds, he told his chauffeur, I've got a lot of money, but I'd give every penny of it right now just to be here with Mrs. Ford. You see, it was the money, it was the adulation, it was the never having anyone ever tell you no that was the undoing of Henry Ford. Yes, he had gained the whole world from a human perspective, but as his life is ending, the book recounts that he was visiting all the places where his life began, no doubt wishing he had made different choices, wishing he could do a lot of it over again. And many of us resonate with the same feeling, don't we? Maybe we haven't had the exact same story as Henry Ford, but there are moments in our lives where we think back on, we cringe, right? You know what I'm talking about? Those moments you remember from your past and you're like, oh, I don't want to remember that memory. Why is it in my brain right now? We think back on our lack of wisdom in certain instances because of our lack of faithfulness to God. Because of some missteps that we made, and and now in retrospect, we look back on those things, we know how we could have avoided some of those mistakes. In church, I tell the story for a setup of what we're going to explore this morning in the life of King Solomon. Solomon's story, in many ways, is a classic story of someone who was well-intentioned and aimed in the right direction, as we learned last week. But over time, due to the influence of others, he begins to steadily be pointed in the wrong direction, making unwise decisions influenced by others. I'm going to pray that the Holy Spirit will help each of us to see what part of Solomon's story we need to learn from this morning, because we all can learn from this side of Solomon's story, the unfaithful part. Because whether you've been walking with the Lord for one day or 10,000 days, we can all grow in our faithfulness to God. Amen? Let's say a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, um, you've given us Solomon as an example in some ways of what to look up to, but in other ways of exactly what not to do. Lord, I pray that as we're confronted in chapter 11 of Kings, with his life and his misdeeds, that we wouldn't necessarily be just discouraged in this, but we would use it as a tool to see how we should be relating to you and how we should not. Father, by your Spirit, guide us in this, because we all have unfaithfulness in us that needs to be rooted out. Lord, this isn't done to condemn us or to point the finger, but Lord, you want us to walk in step with you, that we might avoid the mistakes and the pitfalls of this life and live triumphantly as we can in Christ. And so, Father, as we look through this text, there's so much in here. Help us to see what is for us today, how we can level up and be a resilient disciple. We pray in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Please turn with me in your Bibles, if you haven't done so already, to 1 Kings chapter 11. I'm going to start reading in verse 1. In the preceding chapter, chapter 10, it kind of retells Solomon's great wealth, like how exactly wealthy he is in chapter 10. This alone was not his undoing. 
His great wealth coupled with his love for many, many wives was the beginning of the end for this once great king. And we start reading in verse 1. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. Verse 4, as Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of, his, of David his father had been. He, he followed Asherah, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David his father had done. We're going to pause there. It is hard to comprehend what it must have been like to have 700 wives. Not to mention 300 concubines. I mean, keeping all of these anniversary dates correct must have been very challenging for old Solomon. But friends, he is not supposed to be living like this at all. In Deuteronomy 17, verses 14, 14 through 17, God provides guidelines for the future kings of Israel. God says this long before Solomon ever comes along, emphasizing that they should not acquire excessive wealth, horses, or wives, right? Because all the other kings in the lands are doing this type of stuff. And so what would possess someone like Solomon, someone with apparently vast wisdom, to have so many wives, especially when he knows that God is against this plan for him? Well, there are at least five reasons why he might have chosen this path. Number one is political alliances. One common reason for kings to have many wives was to form political alliances and to strengthen diplomatic relationships with other kingdoms. Marrying princesses or daughters of foreign rulers helped to create bonds of friendship and mutual support, potentially deferring conflicts and securing military alliances. The second reason why he might have done this was due to dynastic succession. Kings sought to secure the future of their kingdom, their dynasty. And having many wives and producing a large number of offspring helped with that. The more heirs the king had, the greater the chance of a stable succession and continuity of a royal line. The third reason is consolidation of power. Marriage alliances could help consolidate power by incorporating noble families or influential individuals into the king's own family. This allowed the king to then extend his control and influence over many different regions in the area or social groups, enhancing his authority and his legitimacy. The fourth reason is the display of wealth and status. He's flexing here. The number of wives a king had is often seen as a symbol of wealth, power, prestige. Taking multiple wives, especially from noble, wealthy families, showcased the king's resources and demonstrated his ability to support and maintain a large household. The last reason, number five, is probably what a lot of us would presume 
a personal desire for pleasure. In some cases, kings simply indulged in polygamy due to personal desires or for the sake of pleasure. Having multiple wives could provide the king with companionship and the fulfillment of his physical desires. And here are some of the reasons why Solomon may have made this choice to have 700 wives. And from a historical perspective of an earthly king, this may have made some sense. But all of these reasons are of the flesh. His reasoning is political. It's a means to move up a social hierarchy, a way to gain power for himself. God clearly has no need for any of this. And clearly Solomon has forgotten this truth. You know, last week we talked about the Hebrew word shalem. Shalem carries the idea of being whole or sound in every aspect of who you are, being completely sincere, undivided loyalty. Shalem is what God had asked Solomon for. And at the time, Solomon was willing to give God shalem, his wholehearted devotion. But as we approach here in chapter 11 of 1 Kings, Solomon has given himself over not to God, but to be influenced away from God by his many wives who serve another master. Solomon probably thought that these marriages were going to strengthen the kingdom. It's probably how he rationalized it, right? Like, if I do this, it's going to be strengthening the kingdom. It's going to be a good thing. But in fact, these marriages were going to be the kingdom's ruin. And this brings us to our first truth for this morning. It is foolish to trade eternal promises for short-term gains. It is foolish to trade eternal promises for short-term gains. I don't know whether we've always been like this as people, but it seems like we live in a culture right now of short-term gains. The New Yorker just came out with an article not too long ago where they were talking about, and this is real, a pill that researchers are working on right now that you take once a day, but it gives you all of the benefits as if you've gone to the gym and you've worked out. That sounds like science fiction. I have no idea what the side effects are going to be of a pill like that, but there, there are going to be some. I am not going to tell you all the name of the pill either. I do not want to be complicit in your downfall. But this is an idea, like you realize if there is a pill, that could do that. It is going to fly off the shelves, right? They're not going to be able to keep it in stock. Why? Short-term gains. Chat GPT is all the rage right now, right? Especially for young people. My daughter has told me that young people, not her apparently, but other young people <laughs> who have a book report on Hamlet do and they haven't read it, ChatGPT will certainly make a segment of our society less wise, as they have not read Hamlet, but they get to turn in a really good five-page synopsis of it. As far as educating our students goes, ChatGPT is a short-term gain. I mentioned last week that I love taking naps, especially on Sundays. Sunday is my nap day, but not while I'm driving a car. This is a couple who fell asleep in their Tesla as they, uh, you know, they're on I-90 near Boston. They programmed their way home, and then both of them fell fast asleep. And this is just one 
picture of this. You could find tons of videos of people on YouTube who are behind the wheel of their Tesla fast asleep. And while this seems like you can get a benefit of a nap while you drive home, this is a short-term gain, friends. There are also other videos that I will not show you of people who did not make it home because they did this. Now imagine when these people, though, when they got home and they saw themselves on the nightly news, like how embarrassing is that, right? How do you explain that? Short-term gains. In our text, Solomon is looking to make short-term gains. He isn't making decisions with eternity in mind. How do we know? Think about it. God promised in 2 Samuel 7 to secure David's kingdom forever. The God of the universe, the God of the universe made David, Solomon's father, that promise. Solomon knows this. He has to know this. And yet he chooses to violate God's law to marry unbelieving women in order to broker treaties and strengthen the kingdom himself, right? He knows that the God of the universe has made this promise, but yet he does many, many things in order to secure it himself. This is so short-sighted, but how often do we do similar things? We say with our mouths, God will provide, but our actions indicate that we really don't trust him. Our actions indicate that we trust ourselves. And here we see Solomon's trust in himself is his undoing. And friends, don't get me wrong. In our own strength, we can make some great short-term gains. We can make money. We can become influential. We can have what looks like success, but it doesn't last because we do not live forever. But the eternal promise, the eternal promise for you and I in Christ Jesus is found in John 11, 24, 25, and 26, where Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then Jesus asks, do you believe this? Our belief, friends, in the eternal promises of God is paramount. Jesus knows this. That's why he says it. Friends, if you believe in the eternal promises of God for you, you'll be able to make the wisest choices because you will be inoculated against the allure of short-sighted gains that this world is full of. Solomon is swimming in a sea of short-term gains. And as we continue to read, he is getting ready to drown. Continue reading with me in verse 7. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. He did the same for all his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice, Verse 10, although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, since this is your attitude and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I have commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. 
I want to give some context to the high places that are referenced here. What does that mean, high places? High places refers to elevated uh, sites or hilltops where worship and religious rituals were conducted. These high places were typically open-air locations, often featuring altars and, and pillars and sacred stones. Originally, high places were used by the Israelites for worshiping Yahweh. They served as local centers for worship before the construction of the temple in Jerusalem. But what we're seeing here in our text is that after the construction of the temple, remember we talked about that last week in chapter 7, Solomon completed the temple. But here we see in chapter 11, he is still building high places of worship for his foreign wives to worship their own gods. The problem with what Solomon has done that this goes directly against what God has commanded. The law of Moses, in the law of Moses, God had designated a specific place of worship, which was initially the tabernacle and then later the temple. God instructed the Israelites to offer sacrifices and to worship him exclusively at that chosen place to maintain unity and purity in their worship. Building of high places for the worship of foreign gods was a violation Of God's commands, and it led to syncretism, which is a theological term for the blending, the the meshing of different religious beliefs and practices. And this undermined the worship of the one true God, Yahweh. So imagine these high places as a polytheistic free for all, where yes, you can still worship Yahweh, the one true God, but if you want to, you can uh, sprinkle in a little Molech. Right? Or a little bit of a dash of chemosh over here. Over time, the Israelites were starting to become, some of them, polytheistic because their leader Solomon had confused the worship of God to appease his wives and his allies. And so God decided that Solomon needed to be drawn to account for this. His punishment is that his kingdom will be torn away from him and given to one of his subordinates. I want you to remember what Solomon said last week. We covered this last week in Solomon, the faithful king. In chapter 8, Solomon says at the dedication of the temple, May all the peoples of the earth know that the Lord is God. There is no other. Be wholeheartedly, he tells the people, devoted to the Lord, walk in his statutes, keep his commands as it is today. How the mighty have fallen. And that brings us to our second truth for this morning. It is foolish to worship idols when you know the one true God. There are no shortage of idols in our current day and time, all vying for our attention, for our resources, for our time, our affection. But gone are the days of Chemosh and Milcom and Molech. We now have the idols of Apple and Android, these two juggernauts battling it out for the prize of our minds. A survey conducted by Deloitte found that an average American checks their smartphone 58 times per day. I don't know what it is if you have an Apple Watch, because I have one of those, and that thing is just dinging all the time. 
A 2020 report by App Annie revealed that global, global users spend an average of 4.2 hours per day on their smartphones. A survey conducted by Common Sense Media revealed that 50% of teens felt addicted to their mobile devices, and 72% of teens reported feeling the need to immediately respond to text messages, notifications, and social media. And then there's nomophobia. Has anybody heard of nomophobia? Anybody know what nomophobia is? It is the fear of being without a mobile device. This is actually a real phobia. It's a real disorder. A study published in, the, in a human behavioral journal found that 58% of participants that were in this study experienced symptoms of nomophobia, such as anxiety, when they were without, when they were without their mobile phone. And here is the kicker statistic. Pay attention to this one. A survey conducted by Secure Envoy, which is a, a tech company, reported that 66% of respondents feared losing or being without their phones. Out of that same group of people, 41% feared physical assault. This survey is telling us that people in our culture would rather be assaulted than be without their phone. Houston, I think we have a problem. But here's why I'm picking on our phones. Many of us spend more time reading our feed than we do reading the Word of God. Many of us spend more time texting and tweeting than we do seeking and praying. Now hear what I'm saying. Do not leave here today and take a hammer to your smartphone because Pastor Todd said that they were of the devil. That is not what I am saying. What I am saying is just like the idols of old, the idols of our present day can steal time away from the one true God. They can warp our perception. They can warp what, is, what matters and what doesn't matter. The less time that we have with the Lord, the poorer our decision-making is going to be. It's just a reality. The less time we spend invested with the Lord, the poorer our decision-making is. Less time we're invested in him and his purposes, the more foolish we become. That is what is being seen here in Solomon's life. Now, perhaps your idol has nothing to do with a smartphone because I only had time to pick one, so I picked the phone. But for many of us, it's not the phone. It's another struggle. doesn't mean that you don't have any idols of the heart because we all do. When I was in college, I had an awakening. It's one of the most pivotal moments of my life, really, after the summer of my freshman year. God had been trying to get my attention for a while, and I had been not paying attention for a while. God was trying to get my attention that he was calling me into full-time vocational Christian ministry. And for some reason, I had been very resistant to the idea of being a pastor. I didn't walk away from the Lord. I wasn't living a backslidden life. It wasn't really anything like that. But I didn't want to hear that part of God's plan for me. I have my own plans for my life. Thank you very much, God. And the honest truth was that I had a lot of earthly hindrances that were causing me to not want to submit to God's will. In short, I had, a, I had an overwhelming lack of surrender. God was calling me in to a deeper version of what it meant to surrender to him, and I wasn't interested in hearing his plan. 
I was a bit like Solomon. I wanted to be in control. Yeah, I would have said that I wanted to live a victorious life for Jesus, but I wanted to decide what that was going to look like. I did not want to take my hands off of my life. I thought I knew what I was doing, but I didn't have any idea what I was doing. During my summer break after my freshman year, God got a hold of me big time, though. And through a series of circumstances, he exposed the idols, the absolute idols I had in my life, the idols of control, the idols of personal security. And God took those away and he replaced it with a strong desire to submit to his will. I had a new desire to submit to him no matter what that looked like. And that was actually really the problem. I would say at the time that I was walking with the Lord, I was faithful to the Lord in a lot of respects, but it needed to look like what I wanted that to look like. I was not willing to take my hands off of my own life and surrender fully to him. I can remember once I surrendered to the Lord, it was like a weight had been lifted, really. It was like a weight had came off me. He changed my heart as I chose to follow his plan for me. And I would say that at that point in my life, it went from me being like a a Christian who was doing good things. I was walking with the Lord, so to speak, but I still wanted to be in control. Like God wasn't going to tell me what to do. I was going to go along as long as I got to make the decisions, right? But that's not obedience. That's not surrender. We just sang A song, one of my favorites, I will build my life upon your love because it is a firm foundation. I wanted to build my life on the foundation that I was going to arrange. And God invited me into something greater, something deeper, something far more beautiful than I could have ever have done myself. He changed my heart as I chose to follow his plan. Back in our text, Solomon is not following God's plan for his life. He's just not. In 1 Kings chapter 11, we see after God removes his hand from Solomon, all of the enemies become, begin to come out of the woodwork. God's hand has been removed. That blessing has been beginning to be removed from him. God is going to make one of his subordinates, Jeroboam, king. Jeroboam had been one of Solomon's most trusted administrative officials, and now he is going to rule the northern kingdom. Here in chapter 11, Jeroboam meets with the prophet Ahijah, who's going to prophesy to Jeroboam about what God is getting ready to do. And as you continue on to read in verse 30 of chapter 11, we're going to see the nation of Israel fracture due to Solomon's unwise decisions. Verse 30. And Ahijah took hold of the new cloak he was wearing and tore it into 12 pieces. Then he said to Jeroboam, take 10 pieces for yourself, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, see, I'm going to tear the kingdom out of Solomon's hand and give you 10 tribes. For for the sake of my servant David and the city of Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, he will have one tribe. I will do this because they have forsaken me and worshiped Asherah, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of the Moabites, and Molech, the god of the Ammonites, and have not walked in obedience to me 
nor done what is right in my eyes, nor kept my decrees and laws as David, Solomon's father, did. Here we see Ahijah proceed to deliver God's message to Jeroboam. God will give ten tribes to Jeroboam, reserving one tribe for the sake of David. Consequently, Jeroboam will assume the leadership over the majority of Israel. God chose to transfer much of the kingdom's rule to Jeroboam out of divine judgment. This prophecy serves as a rebuke for Solomon's transgressions. And this really marks a pivotal point in the history of Israel. And this brings us to our third truth for this morning. Our foolish decisions may cause us to miss out on amazing blessings. Our foolish decisions may cause us to miss out on amazing blessings. Friends, you have to remember that God had been very, very patient with Solomon. This did not come about in a snap, this decision to divide the nation. But Solomon's foolishness at the end of his life, it was persistent. No doubt he had heard the prophet's warnings, but he paid the prophets no mind. There were wise counselors that were advising him against his decisions, but he paid them no mind. No doubt he was warned, but perhaps he thought, I'm the son of David. My place is secure no matter what I do. Have you read the promises to my father? You see, God is still going to keep his promise to David. He's going to keep his word. But he's going to minimize the blessing Solomon could have received because of his unfaithfulness. Friends, God wants to bless your life. He wants to bless my life. He is the God of blessing. But you will not live in his blessing by living your life on your own terms. It doesn't work that way. Blessing from God is closely associated with obedience. I will build my life in you. This does not mean that we have to be perfect. Because a lot of times that's the cop-out, right? It's like, well, I can't do that because God's expecting perfection out of me. No, he's not. What he is asking for is for us to seek and to walk with him. Some of us get bummed out when we hear about Solomon's life. Anybody here? Just bummed out by Solomon, some of the choices that he made. Nobody is bummed out by Solomon. Wow. Wow. So I'm just going to start over from the beginning. Some of you are bummed out? Okay. We feel as though he should have been like a person to be admired. It's like he was like set up for success and he had such a good start, right? This would be like a sprinter, like running in the Olympics and killing it and getting ready to cross the finish line. And then he falls flat on his face. It's like, oh, you were almost there. There are a couple of things that I would say to bring Solomon's life into perspective. If you, like me, from a child have just like read the story of Solomon's life and are like, man, why does it have to be that way? Number one, the fact that the Bible does not hide anybody's character flaws, not even the good kings, it highlights that the Bible isn't a made-up history written by fanboys to glorify a nation, but rather an accurate accounting of actual people who were working out their faith in God just like we are. Number two, because of 
the flaws of Solomon and many others that are put on display, we can learn. If we had the cookie-cutter version of Solomon's life without all of the mess, we couldn't learn as much from that. There wouldn't be as much to take from that. Understanding his missteps with the Lord can help us to level up in our relationship with God because he is the same God. Number three, we must remember that God is the main character of this story. He gets the glory. He is the real hero. And while there are many influential and inspiring people in the Bible, Jesus is the only one we should look with complete admiration upon. Why? Because when he had the choice, he chose to go to the cross for you and I. He chose to be beaten, stripped naked, shamed, scorned for you and I. He chose to suffer the rejection from God the Father as he bore the sin of the world. He chose obedience, and because of that, we can receive new life. 